Hello and welcome to Connected Generation. My name is Nikia Anani and I am your host. This week's episode is super special. It's with a great friend of mine, Kay Jagada. Kay is a screenwriter and he's a creative entrepreneur. And we sat down and really unpacked the importance of creativity in society, particularly at such an hour as this, where it's such a difficult time for a lot of us as a result of the pandemic and things, and how it's so important as Africans for us to tell our authentic stories. And part of that storytelling actually is quite applicable to us as family businesses. We need to also tell our authentic stories and pass them from generation to generation. So enjoy. Thank you. Okay, welcome. Welcome to Connected Generation. It's good Thank to have you. you here. Thank you, Nick. It's great to be here. Yes, awesome. You are a creative entrepreneur, a screenwriter, and you left your nice and tidy nine to five <laughs> <laughs> as an African to pursue creative entrepreneurship. That is yeah. a very interesting life journey. Um, just tell us more about that journey and just more about what you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, like you said, I'm a screenwriter. Um, I was born in London, grew up in Lagos, and moved back to London at 15 to, uh, you know, continue secondary school and then to the States at 19 for university, moved back to London for my master's and then finally moved to Nigeria in uh, 2009. Uh, I worked briefly in uh, the government and policy uh, department of an oil multinational and then after that worked in uh, facilities management for several years, five years and then um, started a small business also in facilities in Nigeria before moving back to England <laughs> again and working in and working in construction. Uh, I got seconded by that construction firm to the Netherlands um, where I, I began getting involved in hyperscale tech infrastructure. So essentially building cloud uh, data centers for, for tech leader. Uh, I did that until the end of last year when I decided to go full time into writing and filmmaking. So it's been, yeah, it's been a bit of a journey and yeah, completely sort of opposite ends of the spectrum. But, you know, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. I'm completely, it. completely. And even like, even within your career journey, the yeah. shift from FM to, you know, setting up your own business to moving back to the UK, you've had yeah. huge life transitions and Absolutely. career transitions. How did you navigate those huge changes? Um, yes, I think so. So FM was, uh, an incredible sort of foundation, uh, especially FM in Nigeria, uh, because facilities by its very nature, uh, requires you to always be on standby and even more so in Nigeria because everything that can go wrong will go wrong, um, in terms of infrastructure in Nigeria. And, and a facility, uh, manager's greatest fear is that one of his buildings you know, it's going to catch fire. So you're literally always waiting for that phone call, even at, uh, you know, one in the morning. And it's happened. So Lord, I have, tell us I about have, that. Tell us about that one. <laughs> I, I have gotten that phone call before. I mean, I remember once, uh, it was a Sunday and because I live quite close, uh, to, to the biggest site that, you know, that I managed, um, I would 
drop in on, on Saturdays and Sundays and just do a little quick walk around. And I had actually just done a walk around. Um, so I got back home, you know, opened the, opened the can of beer. It was just relaxing. Nice Sunday afternoon. And then my phone just started blowing up. I pick up the phone and the guy's like, look, the building is on fire. I'm like, what oh, building? No, <laughs> he's like, the building. Blah, blah. I'm like, I just left, I just left that <laughs> place. Uh, and I literally had to go there and, you know, sort of manage that situation. So, uh, I'm very thankful for my, my FM days because it prepared me, uh, in terms of, um, managing resources and being super creative and just sort of always, uh, you know, expecting the worst. Um, so yeah, so, so FM was a great foundation for that. Moving back to the UK and working, uh, in construction as a, as a senior planner. Uh, and project manager, it was a, the, the environment was a lot more structured and a lot more predictable. So, mm. you know, my FM training sort of, you know, for me, it was Scooby Snacks, man. I was like, yeah. <laughs> every day I know I'm at work at eight and I know I leave at four. Nothing crazy is going to happen. I mean, mm. the stuff that people were crying about every day, like, oh, this happened. Like, for me, I was just like, you know, that's <laughs> nothing, you know. Um, so, so that was a bit of a change. And then moving into hyperscale data infrastructure, that was uh, a big change because the building needed to go up really, really fast. In fact, it's actually that building was the fastest built data center in the world. It was uh, 56,000 wow. square meters, um, you know, pretty much twice the size of, of Wembley Stadium and the 15th longest building in the world. Uh, we built it in 13 months, which wow. was a world record. Um, you know, of course, for the company and it's the fastest built in the world. So that was quite high pressure, uh, in terms of what the deliverables were. And obviously, no, no avenues, no, no room for any sort of errors or mistakes in planning. Um, so as the senior planner, you had to ensure that those deadlines were met. And if you didn't meet those deadlines, there huge fines, uh, to pay. So, so that was, uh, a bit of a change as well and sort of took me back to my, Building, I mean, doing FM where you know it's quite high octane and long hours and, and that sort of thing. Cool. And so, why did you make that decision to finally pull the plug and just you know go 100 for your screenwriting? For as long as I've known you, you've always kind of done you know your creative stuff on the side yeah. as that passion project type of thing, yeah. like. What made you make that tilt towards growing Gongho and 100% into this? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, growing up, you know, obviously you, you know this coming from, you know, a Nigerian background, the, the emphasis is always on sort of formal education and the cookie cutter, you know, typical nine to five job. Mm-hmm. And so I always sort of saw cre- the creative work as a, as a hobby. Mm-hmm. Because my parent, my parents kind of saw it as a hobby. In fact, it's funny. My first job uh, was actually on television. So I was on Storyland, which is a Nigerian storytelling um, program. <laughs> I'm not sure wow. if you remember it. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, I would go for rehearsals every day um, after school. I started at nine, and I did it until I was eleven, I think. Um, and every day would go to for rehearsals and shoot once a week. And I remember at, at the NTA studios in Lagos. And I remember the first time that I got told that you know, I needed to go to the bursary to pick up a check. Um, 
I didn't, you know, I didn't, I thought I was doing it for fun. And even my parents thought I was doing it for fun. So when I went back home, that check the first month, my dad was like, oh, cool. So they even pay you for this. So it sort of gives you the, um, you know, Mm. the indication of how we all felt about, you know, entertainment and creative arts. We always, you just thought it was a hobby. Um, when I started writing a blog in 2006, while I was doing my master's, um, I didn't know how to monetize it. I, you know, I was doing it for fun. There was a lot of engagement. People loved it. Blogging wasn't, at the time, wasn't really seen as a mainstream um, sort of thing. And you know, the honest truth is we just didn't know how to monetize it. Um, there was a, a novelist. She was acting my favorite. She's acting my favorite novelist. And she emailed me and said, you need to be doing this um, properly. So let me help you get published. Hmm. And uh, when that happened, you know, I sort of froze like a deer in headlights. I just didn't know what it meant. So hmm. yeah, yeah, but so what do I do now? And I literally was sort of stuck in that mind frame for, for several years where I'll try to start a novel and just um, shelve it. Um, I started writing screenplays in 2017 and, um, Got actually got a film made. Uh, I was part of the production, um, and I think that was when I started to think, you know what, this is this is a real thing, and I love it more than anything um, I've ever done. Um, I wake up in the morning and that's all I want to do. I go to sleep at night thinking about these characters, thinking about these stories, and maybe it's time to to make that jump. Of course, it was you know a huge decision because it's you know such a risky mm-hmm. undertaking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? So. Um, yeah, I just finally decided, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. Whatever happens, happens. Um, but, you know, I feel like this is, this is my passion and it's my purpose as well. And I need to share these gifts, um, with the world. So, so that essentially is the decision. Incredible, incredible. And just unpacking more about, like, you know, the role of creative arts in society. What role do you see it playing in an African setting and, what can we do as individuals to support this? Um, well, you know, the arts are known to exist um, to add color to the world, uh, to make people happy so that they, they can be productive, uh, to make life uh, a little bit more enjoyable for people. That historically uh, has sort of been the description of the arts, um, especially in our, in our setting. But, um, you know, it's actually deeper than that because art inspires, um, art informs, art educates, mm. um, art passes on um, traditions mm. uh, to future generations. And uh, in African society, for example, you know, you've always had a complex uh, culture of, of a complex artistic culture from metal works to bronze works to paintings, fine mm-hmm. arts to even like tattooing. Um, Poems, of course, stories, music, and all those things help to transfer culture, um, the story of our cultures from generation to generation. Um, you know, there's a general misconception mm-hmm. that we inherited our art forms from colonial masters. But, you know, that couldn't be further from the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you look at, uh, the, some of the Nigerian artwork, uh, Today, you know, Benin Bronze Works, ETC, in the British Museum, you know, it makes you think that the colonial masters knew a hundred years ago that this stuff was valuable. 
enough mm. to be in, in museums, not just in, in their houses. Yeah. To, to be in museums. So they understood the value of it. Um, so yeah, African, African art is, um, extremely, extremely important. Um, you know, it helps us to, to tell the story of our culture and it plays a, you know, a super, super important role in, uh, in passing on our culture to future generations. It essentially tells people who we were, um, and, and who, who, who we're going to be. Also, I think the big thing about art as well is that it, you know, while it provides color mm-hmm. to different cultures, it shows that we're all pretty much the same. The same. So we're the same mm-hmm. people. We all want to be happy. Mm-hmm. We all want peaceful lives. Um, we, you know, we, we want to, we, we love our families. And we all have a drunk uncle in the family. That's, you know it. <laughs> that's every, that's every culture in the world. And I think that actually does more for, you know, relations between people in the world than, than we realize because we, you're like, you know what, we're actually not that different from each other. Mm-hmm. Once, uh, you make that connection, there's an empathy there, um, automatically, uh, even if, you know, we're, we're talking about just our drunk uncle. So, so that's, that's sort of my, you said it informs, it inspires, and it educates. And yeah. my light, my head just went off. Yeah. I've been reading a lot about, you know, the importance of communicating the why when you're yeah. trying to inspire people, as opposed to focusing on the what. Yeah. And just bringing this to a whole conversation in family businesses, yeah. a huge reason why the founding generation are not able to engage the next generation is that they focus a lot on that what and not enough on that why. Right. And in the episode where Sissy came on, she was talking about storytelling and yeah. the importance of, you know, telling the story of the origins of the business, the vision of the business and communicating to the next generation. Just as you said, arts is a way to create that commonality where we are supposedly different, you know, different Absolutely. cultures. We all have that drunk uncle. Yes. We all do. <laughs> <laughs> um, in a weird way, sometimes different generations can be like they're from different countries because we, our generation, we schooled abroad and then we come back to our home country and we yeah. feel like fish out of water. And yes. it's like, now you're talking about this business that's being, you know, um, built in a completely different way to what we know business to be from our right. professional experiences. So yeah, this conversation on art is, is, is really very important. And, COVID-19, how has that impacted, you know, this industry? What changes have you seen in um, the creative arts industry? Um, there, there have been significant changes. Uh, you know, I'll use myself as an example. We were in pre-production for a film, uh, a crime drama uh, that was scheduled to shoot in March in Lagos. Um, and of course, COVID hit and meant that wasn't going to happen. It's quite a big production, or it is um, quite a big production as well. And uh, I, I, I was in Nigeria, I flew back to the Netherlands. And what we had to think uh, about as a group, as a production team, was okay. So what next? What do we do? There was also a lot of uncertainty. So you know, sort of like, are we putting this off for a month? Are we putting this off for two months? Um, you know, it became indefinite and, you know, while we just sat, you know, waited to sort of like sit, sit it out, 
our investor, you know, obviously came in and said, look, I have to pull out of this thing. I don't know when COVID is, uh, the pandemic, the lockdown is going to be over. I don't know when you guys can shoot. I don't know this and all that, which of course was understandable. And, uh, you know, that must have happened across the board. So productions haven't been able to happen, big productions. Um, uh, cinemas have been shut down for many months. So that, in, so, you know, that sort of infrastructure has just been sitting there. No movies and no income. Um, and, you know, for me, quite early on, and I'm quite happy about this, quite early on, I made the decision and the decision was to adapt to the situation. So immediately that happened. I said, okay, what am I going to spend this time doing? And I said, look, I'm going to spend this time writing, right? But now we need to start thinking about, about a different type of project. And the first project that, um, myself and, uh, a really good friend of mine, who's also a sort of production partner, um, he's an actor as well. Uh, the first project that we thought about was, why don't we make a film with only two people? Um, mm. yes, where we, we focus on the dialogue. And that's where the creative aspect, you know, comes in. If you comes in. A, mm. Yeah. If you're, mm. if you're a really good writer, then you should be able to engage an audience for 90 minutes with just wow. two people in the film. Um, the first thing that we thought about was it's timely because the film is set in a pandemic. Mm. Um, the second thing is that the, the two main characters never actually see each other in person. So the whole film, they're talking via Skype and FaceTime wow. and they wow. fall in love across two continents. Wow. Right? So, so the guy's in London and the girl's in LA and they fall in love online. And the entire love story happens during this pandemic. The other advantage for that, uh, that we saw was that, um, it would only need a small crew. Mm. So it would be two people shooting in London, two people shooting in LA, one person mm. shooting in Nigeria, the few scenes in Nigeria. And when we did the budget, the budget is, was a fraction of, I mean, a small fraction of the big movie that we were going to shoot in March. Now that same film would probably do the same amount of revenue. Mm. Right. Um, and, and that essentially has been the way we've been thinking. And, and I think it's how many filmmakers and creators should be thinking at this time is how do you continue to be creative? How do you continue to put out good work, uh, without, um, uh, sort of relying on the old system? Way of doing um, yeah, the old way of doing things, big, mm. massive productions, many locations, many cast members, uh, ETC. How do you make smaller films that are just as good and just as timely. So so for me, I mean, the pandemic has been, it, it's not been that bad. It's actually been a revelation to me because now my mindset is, I think this is the, the new model. Why don't we yeah. just make smaller films um, with, with better stories? So I, I suspect that's happening all around the world. It's funny because I read yesterday um, about a film by John David Washington, um, Denzel Washington's son. And it's mm. you know, a pretty like similar story to ours it's two people who fall in love in a building and they just sold it to netflix for 30 million dollars so it's viable (laughs) exactly because the thing is the consumer is bored out of their skulls or just completely mentally like what's the word we've we've been completely bombarded by negative news so there's a real need for inspiration you know and so 
it's not that it's not there's no demand there's definitely a demand it's the supply side that's the challenge yeah there's more demand yeah more demand now because people are spending a lot more time at home and people are just blazing through content you know people watching tv shows back to back Mm -hmm. um season upon season and then they're looking for more stuff so yeah the demand is a lot higher now Mm, interesting and just thinking about the investment side of things like your investor pulled out right mm. in light of covid and things mm. but i i really believe that creative arts is a really viable investment class particularly for families and uh, that have a an investment horizon for long term Yes. but a lot of african business families are yet to maximize this opportunity in your view how can we get africans to invest in art and what are the obstacles to overcome in this area uh, i think you know the first thing is learning um, you know knowledge and learning because you know, you know a lot of africans uh, aren't investing in art because they just really don't know um, the intricacies of it it's, it seems quite new uh, for many of them but you know the arts are super lucrative you look at a guy like Tyler Perry, who's now worth a billion dollars, uh, of making, you know, the films that he's making. And we, we, you know, we've seen the films that he makes, but it, it's simple math. Um, there is a huge demand, um, without enough credible supply. Um, mm-hmm. I think for, for African investors, literally it would be, uh, learning about, uh, film, for example. And learning about, you know, the industry, uh, you know, a, a lot of people will say property is a super viable investment and you see many families investing in, in property. But if I build 10 buildings, I would need to, you know, have a hundred tenants for a fixed term and earn a fixed amount. With intellectual property, it's exponential, right? So if mm-hmm. I build one, one, uh, property, which is, for example, a film, if, it doesn't matter if 1 million people or 100 million people consume it. Um, <laughs> it doesn't deplete. Scalability. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And, mm. uh, so, so I think that the first thing would be not, uh, you know, knowledge and understanding. I think also investing in the right teams. Mm. Um, what you find a, a lot of times in our part of the world is that, uh, investors would, you know, put money into these projects by well-known proprietors. Because mm-hmm. they think it's safer. Um, well, that, you know, that poses a lot of problems as somebody who's in that field, the creative field. And I've, you know, had conversations with a lot of these uh, so-called gatekeepers. And many of them are, you know, many of them, you know, sorry to say, lack the talent for what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, they're executive producers and that's cool. But because they lack, um, talent in the creative aspect, they, you know, commission the wrong stories. They have ideas for stories that are like based off of Hollywood tropes. And then mm-hmm. that's what they want to make. Um, so, so they rely on telling stories that they want to write while they don't necessarily have the talent for telling those stories. Um, so for, for an investor, what I would say is look at people and production companies that you like. So if you like uh, a person or you like a particular story project, then you can help to bolster that team. So if mm-hmm. the screenwriter, for example, is brand new, this is the first time in the game you say okay who's a producer who has experience in the game so you could go find a producer or you could tell him or tell or tell her to find uh, a producer who has experience doing films 
you know, over a certain budget. Um, find a cinematographer who's done it internationally and sort of hedge your risks um, that way. The other thing is um, investors, especially uh, in Hollywood, invest in film slates as opposed to one film. So if mm. you invest in three films, invest in four films, the slate from production company, you know that two of those films are going to do really well. You know, mm. it's just it's just the math. Diversification. Yeah, exactly. So so it's um yeah, so so it's definitely very interesting. Again, you know, I think it's all about um knowledge, uh, really, really having an eye for people that you like, uh, mm. in terms of the sort of stories that they want to tell and sort of charting that path to profitability and, and just understanding the general idea. For me, what I, I say in terms of film is the only way to lose money is to spend too much money. If, if you spend too much money on your first um, outing, then you might get burnt. But I would say, you know, invest a, a, in a reasonable amount of, of funding um, into into a slate. And it's actually quite difficult to do. You have to be really, really bad to, to, lose, to lose money with film. Mm. It's a trust thing, right? Because, you know, people like to do what they're familiar with and the whole concept of investing in an asset class that they're not familiar with is, can be quite, you know, daunting. And yeah. probably that's why they go for those bigger names that they know yes. and they feel should be better performing than the yeah. other names that they don't. And just thinking yeah. about, you know, trust. I think yeah. there's been a huge erosion of trust. Well, I don't know when the trust was actually quite high to begin yeah. with. So I don't know why I'm using the word erosion. Erosion <laughs> means that it went yeah. from up to down, right? But yeah. I think that we, we have a dearth of trust in our society and a huge unwillingness to collaborate from partnerships and, you know, come together, co-create in your journey in this space. Tell us more about how you've collaborated with other people and how you've benefited. Yes. Um, I think, you know, for, for me, the most important thing is the, the values that you're looking for. So as a filmmaker, you know, as a writer, I've collaborated with people who um, I feel have the same sort of values that I do in terms of the creative process. Uh, for example, I'm a writer. Um, writers inherently like to play the corner, they like to play the back in terms of um so if I'm talking to a person who, you know, say you know, the producer and they super focused on the glamour, then that is a red flag for me. Because you inherently uh on this side of the of the of the table, you like to play the back so that other people can be in front for the product. What mm. you find a lot is that you know you get Collaborating with people who are so intense and so focused on, on the fame. And you know, just for, as an example, that is a red flag, uh, for me, because the truth is, you know, people see film as glamorous, right? Mm. Or, or writing, for example, as glamorous, but the set is, there's nothing glamorous about a film set. A film set is essentially spending 13, 14 hours a day just waiting around, uh, mm. super frustrating, super boring while you're on set. Super, you know, ugly. There's nothing pretty about that aspect. So if the person is, you know, if the person is always talking about the end product when it comes out and the shine, you know, that's just an example. So I'm um, looking for people who have the, the, the right sort of um, values 
and then also the right sort of mindset in terms of projects. Um, I've had to turn down a few projects from some of those gatekeepers that we were talking about earlier, um, mm. because the projects just seem like vanity projects. Um, why are we doing this? And it's just sort of like, yeah, so we're going to blow. We're going to, and I'm just like, okay, again, that is, that, that could work for somebody else. Um, but for me, like for what I'm trying to do, um, you know, it's not, it's, you know, it's not interesting. So, you know, I, I think that essentially is, um, what it is when you look at who you want to, um, partner with, whether it's investors, whether it's co-writers, producers, actors, I think it needs to be, to be people who are interested in doing the same thing that you want to do, which for me is telling authentic, um, African stories, uh, telling stories that, um, that resonate with the world that are true to us and true to our culture. And you know, that goes in, um, with investors. Investors, as a friend of mine says, not all money is good money. So yes. sometimes an investor will say, "I'm going to throw a lot of money at you and you do this and do that," and you have to take a step back. We as creatives need money to make stuff, so it's a very, very tough decision when somebody's throwing a lot of money at you. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but you have to sort of stay true to yourself and really um, you know, take a measured approach. I love the point that you made about it's about telling authentic African stories to the world. I think for the longest time, you know, Chimamanda teaches the danger of a single story. Oh my God, she's like my shiro. I remember the first time I saw that. <laughs> she's the talks. person who emailed me. Yeah, she, oh, she's my shiro. That one is just <laughs> incredible. Yeah, I remember is. I was in uni and I was just glued to my screen watching her talk about the danger of a single story. And I was like, hey, yeah, that that is kind of right. There's only yeah. one message that grows out from Africa to the world. Yeah. And you know, for a long time, we can shame and blame other people for that, but it's really is our fault. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> because we haven't really told a different story. Exactly. And so we need more people like you to champion positive stories, authentic right. stories of who we are yeah. and pass that out to the world. And also so we pass it on to the next generation. Because like I said, we're almost like immigrants in our own nations. Yeah. And and sometimes there can be this kind of misfit experience where um, you can feel like an immigrant all over again in Nigeria and raising up the next generation. It's it, it can be this weird experience. So this is our history, or this is documenting who we are now. Yeah. is really important in imbibing Absolutely. and 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 um, you know preserving our culture with. The little yeah. ones. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, when you think about what the um, kids are exposed to um, today compared to what we've got, I mean, I mean, they got Black Panther. Um, when you I was know, young. <laughs> what, did we, what did we have? <laughs> you know what I mean? When I was young, I mean, I used to read Eddie Blighton books, and it was all about kids running through the countryside in Somerset. Yep. But I was in Nigeria. And yeah, <laughs> there's no countryside. There's no countryside. I don't know anyone in Somerset. We, we don't eat pie. <laughs> we don't eat pie and have tea. Excellent. Um, and I, I think so. So I think, yeah, absolutely. I think it's so, so, so important that we give our kids uh, a, a true sort of depiction of who we are, you know, of our culture. When you look, um, you know, around the world, you look at the Greeks and the Romans. Yes, they they wrote things down. We didn't necessarily write things down, but we did have a sophisticated culture of passing on our stories. Um, in, in many parts of Africa, there were griots whose entire um, life job was to 
to, to be custodians of the stories of, of the people. And then that griot would have a son and pass all those stories down to his son. And his son would do that. And for generation to generation, it would be a family of griots telling the story of the people. Um, and it's the same with us. I mean, we have these Orikis, uh, which is sort of a warrior uh, praise songs that pass from generation to generation to, that tell the story of our, of our history and our mythology. Um, and all these things are quite sophisticated. They're quite complex. But our kids don't know. Um, and, you know, sometimes I hear people talking about Thor and Odin and, you know, the, the Nordic sort of mythology. And then they get upset because they feel that a lot of that stuff has been stolen from the Yoruba mythology, for example, in Yoruba pantheon. And, Interesting. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, I, I take exception to the accusatory part because I'm like, it's not about whether they stole it from us or not. It's that they're telling Nordic mythology. They're, they're telling you about Greek mythology. We need to talk about Yoruba mythology. We need to mm. tell our own stories. You wouldn't um, go somewhere and then let somebody introduce you and then describe you for an hour and the entire description that they're given is wrong. You'd say, hold on, no. I'm not, you know, in oil and gas and I'm not 50 years old. This yeah. is who I am. Um, yeah. But what we've done for a long time has been to just allow other people to describe us mm. uh, and then get upset after the fact. It, it is not anybody's job to describe you. It is, it is yours. Your job. I think it also gives a kind of, it gives the next generation a permission to be African and almost starts. I felt like growing up, particularly when we moved to England, it was almost like I, um, it was, I don't know how to explain it. It was, the token and in mm. being that token was almost like yeah we're just letting you into this circle into this room but ordinarily you shouldn't be here and it wasn't necessarily something that people were saying to me but it was what media i was consuming was saying to me yes. right i never heard stories about people that were like me i never saw people that were like me on tv if i did they were not doing well you know, so I think it's really empowering to the next generation. I'm so glad they have like Wakanda, right? That gives them that permission to be and gives them that, you know, gives them that ability to dare to dream and envision something different from what we, we experienced growing up. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, you know, had a conversation with a friend the other day and, you know, and she was asking me why I liked certain movies. I said, I know you thought about it, but do you know what it is? I think I just like seeing people who look like me on, on, on the screen. I don't know what it is, but sometimes the stories aren't great, but I just want, I just want to see people like me. Um, it's affirming. Exactly. You know, mm. um, so, so it's, I think it's so important. And we have a long, we have a long way to go, but it's, uh, you know, it's an, it's an important, important role. Mm. I think we, we literally are shaping the way that the future generations see themselves. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think about, you know, like you were just talking about moving back to England. When I moved to England at 15, people asked me in school all the time, did you, do you guys speak English in, in Nigeria? Do you, what are the houses? Yeah, yeah like? I went through that crap as well. Yeah. 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 And imagine the kids now. 
um, coming from Africa to school. The kids today wouldn't say, do you live in trees? Because they've seen Black yeah. Panther. They've seen Black Panther, yeah. yeah. Sure, um, yeah. And, and so, yeah, media you know, and entertainment does an incredible, incredible, has an incredible role um, in, in affirming um, these, these perceptions uh, mm-hmm. about who we are, about where we're from, about the complexity and sophistication of our culture. Hmm. So, uh, and there are examples of families that have built entire businesses off this creative arts space, and their legacy is tied to this, like the Wayans and the Kutis in Nigeria. Like, what can we learn from their journeys in this space? Like, how have they been able to? It's not just been a, about one individual. It wasn't just about Fela, and then he came and he went and boom. Yeah. But they carried on that legacy and they kept that story going. How? What can we learn from their journeys? Yes, I love the idea of families who create art together. Um, I think with, with two of those families that you mentioned, the, the key thing is um, that they got the so so with the Kuchis, um Bella got his kids involved. Of course, he had the, you know his wives. His um, plenty, plenty of wives. <laughs> yeah, his <laughs> All, in, all involved as dancers, uh, but he, you know, he, he got his sons involved in music as well. You know, starting with Femi. Um, so, with uh, creatives, I think it's important if you have children who show a flair or who show some interest, or, you know, some gift in in the creative arts to get them started early. Um, whether you know, it could be your you know, kids, nephews, nieces, whatever it is. Creatives should always sort of identify the talent quite young. Um, so Fala did that, the Wayans did that as well, because you know, Keenan Ivory Wayans is the, the oldest uh, Wayans sibling. And what he did was he essentially got all his younger siblings um, in the game. So he's sort of a godfather. You know, the same thing with the Jacksons. Um, so, so I think an important part of that is you know, identifying the talent early. You know, I have a, 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 a nephew. I, I call a lot of my nephews, um, who, my friend's son, you know, she's son, Fokwe. Yeah, um, Fokwe. Uh. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, I keep telling his parents, I'm like, this guy is an actor. Yeah, he's he an, is he's definitely an actor. <laughs> he's yeah. a natural actor. Yeah. So it's about identifying you know, things like that and getting them involved mm. early. So, you know, what, what I say to my friend is that, you know, every chance I get, I'm putting all my nephews, godsons, you know, goddaughters, everybody in, 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 you know, my stuff early because what's mm. going to happen is some people are going to have a flair for it. I really like it. I want to continue. Um, some would, you know, feel like, yeah, this is not for me, but it's important to get them in early. So I think that's one thing. Um, the other thing is, you know, for families who, or, or, or partners, um, who are interested in the arts, I think the key thing is to just work together. Um, make your films together. Um, shoot your, your TV shows together. Um, to start collaborating early and, and getting the kids involved, uh, involved early, I, I think would be my, um, would, would be my advice on that. Incredible, incredible. This has been such a fun conversation. So how, do you have any closing words? Um, any last um, comments? Yeah, I think I would say, you know, I'd like to encourage people to keep uh, enjoying the arts. Keep learning about participating in the industry, both from an investment perspective uh, and even as a, as a consumer. Let's consume our own stuff. Let's watch our own stuff. Um, the more we love our culture and our 
payment and our art firms, the more the rest of the world will latch onto it. And we're seeing it with music now, we're seeing it yep. with fashion, including, yep. um, I mean, you're seeing, you know, you're seeing a lot of collaboration across, um, continents and across the world because mm-hmm. we, we, we love the stuff so much. So I'll say, yeah, keep, keep, um, supporting the arts. Even if the stuff isn't great, keep engaging because what happens then is the more you criticize it, the more you critique it, the better mm-hmm. it'll, it'll get. Um, the, the, the more pressure there is on creatives to make good content. So keep engaging with it. Um, my Instagram is kjegede, K-A-Y dot J-E-G-E-D-E. Um, and uh, expect to hear from us really soon. Um, Love Langley coming out pretty soon. There's another project coming out. I'm not sure I'm, I'm allowed to talk about it, but it comes out just before Christmas. Okay. Um, and we have uh, yeah, quite a few projects coming coming next year. So nice, yeah. nice. So we'll put links to any projects that you are allowed to share in the show notes, so people okay. can and links to your Instagram as well. So Perfect. thank you so much. This has been good fun. You're going to come back. <laughs> Unpack Absolutely. more elements about yes, yeah, whole creative space and society. Awesome. Anytime. Anytime. It was a great time. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Wow, that was so meaty. I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation with Kay. He definitely has to come back to unpack so many subtopics that we discussed. Creative arts are important in Africa. Creative arts are important in the world. Creative arts are important right now in 2020 in the midst of a pandemic because they infuse us with hope. They are oxygen for our souls. They infuse our mind with possibility where we may see hopelessness or we may see scarcity. They empower our children and give them agency and license to be African. And so I think it's really important that where possible, we support those that are creative to go down the lines that they desire to go down, right? To live out their authentic selves as creative entrepreneurs. And if we happen to be, have a passion passion projects that we just do on the side, but we feel a pulling towards doing that full time. I think we should explore that. Go become curious and explore that passion project, not just staying as a passion project, but potentially being your source of livelihood. It is possible. (laughs) So thank you for listening. Take care.